Everybody and welcome to the April 21st, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the one-year anniversary of the University of Colorado A-Line to the airport that has been riddled with more than its fair share of problems. Patty Calhoun from Westward, maybe it's just that any project airport-related needs at least a year to work out the kinks. Is that the situation with the A-Line? Or 10 years in the case of originally building DIA. <laughs> No, I think in this case we have real, we have legitimate kinks that it's going to take some time to catch up with, and then we have things that just weren't right in the first place. The crossing guard, the barriers that we still have to pay to have guards at, that's something that it should never have started with those. You understand there's some uh, gaps, and RTD and Denver Transit Partners, which are on it, make a pretty, good, a pretty good case for the fact that really most of the time, 98% of the time, it's fine, it's not that late. But if you're one of those 2% missing your plane, it definitely, it definitely plays a factor. Or whatever percent of riders we've seen getting off the train in the middle of nowhere to get into buses to finally get you or there. Or to call Uber. Exactly. David Copel from the now nationally infamous Independence Institute, thanks to uh, At Midnight, also at DU Law School. What do you think, or really behind the problems we've seen for this first year, did, did it, was it about uh, it coming out too early, uh, mismanagement, they didn't know what was going on? What would you pin it on? The core problem is RTD. As Dale Tooley, one of Denver's great district attorneys, once said, most people don't think RTD could run a two-car funeral. And they now tell us, oh, it's, well, yeah, we had our problems, but A-Line's going to be fine from now on. RTD public relations is like the National Enquirer, where there actually are some true things that are said, but the fact that they say it doesn't make it any more likely to be true. If they were honest and told you the real facts and figures, then we wouldn't have this light rail fiasco in the first place. These, all these lines should have been built by now or, or getting close to being completed. The cost is more than double, I believe, what they told us it was going to be when they were lying to the public to pass the initiative for the, the light rail lines in the first place, and they're, they're vastly behind schedule. Um, when you have a monopoly system like this, this is the kind of incompetence that almost inevitably results. Eric Sodom, political analyst. You know they've had a tough year when a whole feature on Hey Next with or, or uh, Next with Kyle Clark features if the A line is running today, and the, uh, it's always a surprise. Do you think the problems the A line has had will impact RTD with projects in the future? Sure, it will. It forms public opinion. Uh, I particularly think the naming of the A line is a sign a sign of the great inflation we have in this country. If this is an A line. You know, what do you have to do to get a C or a D anymore? Uh, it has a ripple effect. To your point, Dominic, has a ripple effect on future proposals or future plans by RTD. In the short term, there's the G line, which is probably 
maybe it should be a K line. I don't know where it falls on grades, but um, that's heading out west. But it is on hold until they get these technological issues resolved. So there are people not just along this route who are suffering until they get it figured out. I understand that there's new technology at play here and that new technology often has wrinkles, but I can't figure out why this technology is so dang difficult. I mean, for decades we've had technology where when a train trips something on the rail the crossing guard comes down when it goes past the crossing the crossing guard goes up I don't understand the particular nature of this difficulty they keep getting waivers from the federal government every three months or so there's a new waiver they keep saying this is the last waiver we're, go we're going to, get to do and there keeps being another waiver you wonder at what point does this issue finally get fixed and Halisi Vincent joins us, president of Colorado Black Women for Political Action. Do we need more patience with the A train? Um, you know, interestingly, and I, I take exception with some of the things that were said, um, we have one of the best um, public transportation systems, and RTD actually has won a lot of awards. Um, A-Line is not light rail, it's heavy rail. And there are some um, uh, technical uh, aspects that go into that that they did not have to deal with with light rail. But the, where I don't take exception is that, you know, in building the light rail, they put some of the onus on the backs of those who are uh, most vulnerable by canceling um, bus lines uh, in the Montbello and, and far northeast. And so consequently, first and last mile are an issue for those who cannot afford, you know, for it to be an issue. And then on top of that, you've got the airport that is deciding to take away um, uh, capitalism, I guess, and just award the taxi service to one, uh, one service, and that's Metro. And I think that if we have, you know, a competition, that's always the best. And so I'm hoping that Green Taxi and the rest of the employee-owned taxi services continue to service the airport. Passage of Colorado's long-debated construction defects bill is one step closer to reality this week as legislators and business leaders reached a compromise. House Bill 1279 passed 8-0 to zero in a House committee on Wednesday and if ultimately approved would require an agreement from the majority of condo owners before any legal action can be filed against builders. Patty, we've been teased by progress on this issue before and now that it has been worked on so much, do you think the final bill will be able to really make a difference? It looks like this one is going to reach the finish line. We know that the transportation bill is completely bogged down right now. The hospital provider fee doesn't look like it's going anywhere. But this Wednesday press conference, when everyone is declaring victory after like 11 hours of debate, you would think 420 had started a day earlier and all the fumes were wafting over to the state capitol by just how mellow and happy everyone was and how confident that things were just going to be okay. The uh, the compromises are pretty good. I mean, the the um, binding arbitration idea in a different bill was thrown out, but the majority of the homeowners in a in an HOA, they have to, it has to be 50 plus one. So it's not a super majority. You know, they can't be filibustered. So I think it's a fair compromise. What we will see is if this passes, will developers who've pretty much gotten now what they say they need in order to build condos rather than apartment buildings? Let's see if they really do. David, I know none of us are experts on this particular bill, but from what you've seen of it, is this really going to, you think, drive new construction, or can this impact some of the cranes we're already seeing around town? I, I think it will help, but it's, it's not a complete solution in itself. As Patty said, it changes the law so that in a, in a condo association, you can't have 
you need a majority of the owners uh, to bring a, a lawsuit. And that, that's the most sort of sensible and, and easy to agree on part of construction defects reform. And as she also pointed out, another important part that the, the builders say is to have binding arbitration. Um, but of course, that you know that raises issue. Well, you're taking away people's access to the courts, and so that's been more controversial. That hasn't passed yet. I, d I don't think this will will fix everything. But we've there's a big problem because it's gone from 20 percent of, of construction in Denver uh, residential was was for condos a, a couple decades ago, and it's now down to three percent. And until you change that we're not going to get out of this affordable housing problem. You know, you say, oh, we can solve affordable housing by having, you know, pu government-owned public housing, and we can say when somebody does a, uh, a project, you've got to set aside a certain number of units for affordable housing. Th that's like saying we're going to solve poverty uh, by having a lottery. It's great for the people who are the lucky winners of that very small number of lucky winners, but it, it, it's not a, a, a broad solution that, that everybody can access. Eric, does anybody, does anybody get to claim a big political win if this does finally cross the finish line? Well, I'll be quick on this one, Dominic. Just a couple points. Yes, I think the Speaker and the President of the Senate do get to claim a win because they're new in their offices this year and they were able to forge a compromise that has eluded others. But two other quick points. One, the reason this issue has been so intractable and so long with us it's not about policy. It's not that somebody just came up with this idea. It's all about politics and, and, and the politics of the trial law industry, et cetera. Secondly, what really will be the test here is not where the bill passes, or that's one test, but it's how the insurance marketplace reacts. The reason condos are not being built has less to do with the development community and more to do with the fact that the insurance industry will not cover, will not provide policies. So the insurance industry will get the last say on this in terms of whether this bill is sufficient to address their concerns so that condo projects can proceed. Felicity, how happy should city leaders be about these developments? I don't think that they should um, think that this is a panacea. I, you know, I spoke to some developers when I was running for office a few years ago, and those developers told me that this this was not the reason that condos were not being built, um, and that and that you know this one particular uh, developer said she was still building condominiums. I think you know. I get a little hesitant about this because, as you said, it's it's the insurance. So I'd like to know: Are the insurance lobbyists actually for this or against that, against this? And and that I don't know. But any time you take away the right of of folks to protect themselves, and I know this doesn't totally do that, I get a little squeamish. I do know that we need more housing. I do know that we need more um, condominium. Um, uh, condominiums being built, but I'm not sure that this is the answer. And then the idea of what affordable housing is at $250,000, is, is that's not affordable for, for most uh, Denverites. Mm -hmm. A bill that made major headlines early in the session aimed at repairing Colorado's highways is not expected to pass before the closest legislative session. After winning approval in the House, House Bill 1242 faced opposition in the Senate, specifically three Republicans in the Senate Finance Committee that opposed the 0.5% tax hike that would then be offered to the voters to approve in the fall. David, I have to believe that the Institute is pretty happy about this because you have a, would, would have had a competing ballot measure, now perhaps yeah. be by itself, there might be some others, that offer an alternative to funding uh, highway or road construction. But is this a major loss for the leadership 
of the Carter legislature. Well, well, partly and partly, I think, because uh, Senate President Grantham didn't get buy-in from his caucus before announcing this, and I think that the caucus had the view that in his negotiations with Speaker Duran, uh, Speaker Duran kind of cleaned his clock, and it was a very one-sided bill. The core problem is it gets touted as this is to fix our roads, which people are for. And I think if you had a bill that was, we're going to raise taxes by so much, and every penny we raise is going to go directly into fixing roads, that might have had a pretty good chance of passing. I'm not sure I would have voted for it, but I, I think the, I, I think it would have pro probably would have succeeded. Uh, but this bill wasn't that. Less than half the money uh, would actually be allocated for roads. It's yeah, we're going to raise taxes a lot. We're going to spend some of this money on state government improving roads, but the majority of the money is going to go in a slush fund to local governments, which they might spend on roads or they might not. So. You know, it, it, it's it's very inefficient if what you want is roads when less than half the money of your new taxes is guaranteed to go for roads. And maybe the counties would spend it on something good. Maybe some people in counties want, you know, a county mass transit system. Well, that's the kind of thing, instead of a general slush fund from the state, go to the voters in your county and say, here's the bus system we'd like to set up. Here's the sales tax we'd like to raise to pay for it. And you can win support for that when you have a specific good idea and you know that the money is going to get spent on what you want it to be spent on. Eric, was this more about leadership, and I'm going to go ahead and point the finger at Senate President Kevin Grantham, failing to really do his homework before he put out something this ambitious? Or is this about the power that some of the more conservative wing of the Republican Party, specifically in the state Senate, really wields at the committee and base level? I'm closer to the second half of uh, the, the second of your choices, Dominic. I think it's really about the changing face of the Republican Party these days, not just locally, but ac across the country, where tax increases are the death knell to any aspiring Republican who has aspirations to any higher office. Let's be clear, the votes to pass this bill still exist on the floor of the Senate because they only need really one Republican vote to flake off and, and join Democrats, assuming all Democrats are on board, which might not be a fair assumption. But the problem is they can't get it out of committee, and they need one out of three Republicans in uh, the Finance Committee to vote for it, and they can't find that one out of three Republican to bring it to the floor. This state, it strikes me, whatever the merits of this bill, and David's criticisms are well taken, this state is stuck right now, whether it's about roads or about a whole host of other issues, this state is stuck. And, it, and as the years start piling up, you start appreciating the, the lack of repair and the lack of care we are providing for this state. It is not an easy answer. I just would point out that John Hickenlooper has, by my math, roughly 20 or 21 months left as governor. It is time. I'd suggest it's past time. I know he didn't expect to be governor. He expected a phone call from Washington that um, somehow didn't come last uh, December or January. But uh, he needs to decide what his legacy is going to be and use these 21 months to some constructive end and lead. And whether it's about roads or, some, or uh, fiscal reform more broadly, pick an issue. He's acquired a lot of political capital. Use the capital. Stand for something. 
Alicia, who do you think is the, the, the big loser here? We see a political battle between three Republicans and a Senate president, but when it's all over and legislative session's over, we're not thinking about the different details in a finance committee. Who comes out as not making this happen? Yeah. Well, in the end, you know, Coloradans are going to be the big losers. You know, it, it's just going to take one collapsed, you know, bridge for the realization to come that, and, 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 I, and I blame part of this, you know, the, the Senate leader is, is interesting, and, I, and the, the choices that he has made so far this session has been interesting. CBWPA is putting together a report card, so I've been looking at all of the legislation and the things that he sends to the kill committee and not, uh, I, I don't get the reasoning. Um, but interestingly, they want to do this tax, uh, this sales tax, which is a regressive tax. Here we go again. We need to get rid of Tabor. And if someone would have the political will to do what needs to be done, we would not find ourselves in this position. We would not find ourselves basically having um, higher ed not being um, uh, financed. You know, we have some of the highest costs for education in the nation. And, it, and, and that results in Tabor. And here we go again with something else that is affected by that where no one has the political will to do anything about it. Patty, where do you think the energy to address Colorado roads is going to come from? From the next driver who loses their um, exactly. axle as they hit a pothole. I was talking to the Littleton Library Group this week, and the thing everyone agrees on in Denver and the suburbs and the cities around us is the roads are horrible and they want to fix. And interestingly, if this measure had made it out and made it to the ballot, but maybe with the problem that David pointed out cleared up, which is money just directly to roads, not to a slush fund, I think it might have passed. But I suspect that in Colorado Inside Out's 50th year, we will still be talking about when is someone going to debruce. It was exactly 25 years ago that Coloradans passed the Tabor Amendment, and we are still talking about can we fix it? Does it need to be fixed? But the roads definitely do. I look forward to watching that from home, the Colorado Inside Out 50th Anniversary Special. <laughs> Let's get to the next topic. Colorado and Jeanette, Viz Jeanette Vizguera made national news this week as she appeared on Time Magazine's list of 100 most influential people. Vizguera is an immigrant who most recently made headlines for taking sanctuary in a local church and speaking out against immigration reform. Eric, does this national spotlight put an uncomfortable microscope on the city of Denver? It puts a microscope. I'm not sure it's an uncomfortable microscope. And let's be clear, this woman is a symbol. She, uh, she was called out because she's a symbol of a class of people. And her story is as compelling as any. And I think it's why time uh, seized on, on, on her story. Uh, I, I struggle with this issue mightily. I mean, I, I don't think a humane society... Uh, or just society treats people as we are treating a lot of immigrants and refugees these days. But there is a fine line. There's no argument in my mind about dreamers or the DACA kids. And she has three kids, I believe, who were born in this country, so they have full citizenship, no question about their citizenship. One who came with her illegally 20 years ago or something like that, who is covered under DACA. So to deport her is to separate her from her whole family. I'm not sure that that is what a just society does. But the whole sanctuary city movement, you know, also at some level, from a process point of view, it reminds me these days of the liberal version of what conservatives have long advocated, whether it's jury nullification or whether it's George Wallace or Orville Faubus or somebody standing in schoolhouse doors a half century ago. 
um, justice is this is not an analogy about justice, but it is an analogy about process and basically defying the law. It is a tough call, um, and heart goes out to people like this woman. Khaleesi, what do you think of the distinction that Time Magazine gave Vizgara? I think it's wonderful, and I have to say that I'm proud of my state and proud of my city, that we are a sanctuary city. I've visited the Unitarian Church and have spoken to some of these folks, and it, it, it's different once you have put a face and a name to the situation. But once again, I, you know, I need to point out the elephant in the room, that in any situation when folks feel uncomfortable, when they don't feel like their economic um, stability is, is safe, they go to xenophobia, and that's where we find ourselves now. We see it all over the globe. It's not just happening in the United States. And if we dealt with the real issue, which is our economics, then we would not be having this conversation. Patty, do you think Michael Hancock and John Hickelooper, when they saw this news, saw that as a good thing or maybe more troublesome? Well, let's see. National attention, Independence Institute, is that more embarrassing than this to Colorado? <laughs> you, know, you know, it's interesting because she was a labor, she was a la involved in the labor union. Um, she also helped set up the sanctuary movement. So it's not just this church. There are now nine congregations that are willing to give sanctuary. So she, clearly she was the easiest one to, for Time Magazine to pick for a hot button issue. There's no question immigration is a huge issue. I mean, how about the fact that the dreamer deported from California, his case is now going to be heard by the judge who'd been vilified by Trump earlier for his Mexican name. So there's some un unbelievable issues coming up. But Chief White is having um, a gathering on Tuesday where he's going to talk about how, how Denver deals with illegal immigrants and the whole issue of sanctuary. Aurora's considering, are they going to redo their whole definition? So it's the hot button topic we're not done with yet. David, wrap it up for us. Time would have made a better choice for an influential person on the immigration issue if it had chosen uh, Larimer County Sheriff Justin Smith. In 2015, Sheriff Smith criticized the Obama administration for its threats to cut off funding to local law enforcement if they didn't get on board with the Obama administration's mass amnesty policy. And in 2017, so he stood up to presidential illegality. And in 2017, he's doing the same thing again and saying, of course, our office cooperates with immigration, federal immigration, like we cooperate with all kinds of law enforcement every day all over the country. But we are not going to be commandeered into putting our Colorado taxpayer resources into your immigration priorities when we may have higher priorities. And we're certainly not going to hold people illegally in violation of the Fourth Amendment and court orders just because Jeff Session tells us to and falsely says that that makes us sanctuary uh, participants. So kudos to Justin Smith for standing up to law and order against two lawless administrations of different parties. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Cahoon, please start us off. You know, it's just impossible to resist bringing up former Denverite Bill O'Reilly. You know, he got his start here at KMGH Channel 7 back in the late 70s. By all reports, was a pain then, too. And it's just too bad that his star didn't just dim out at that point, as opposed to the 30-odd years he's now inflicted upon this country. So... 
that it took Fox as long to take this seriously and to deal with it. All you have to do is turn on that station and understand what's going on with their culture. But um, goodbye, good riddance, and I hope he enjoys his multi-millions in the settlement. Twenty-five million is not a bad way to go, but I get your point. David. For this long overdue firing of O'Reilly, let's remember that it was 10 years ago when O'Reilly went on this false, inflammatory jihad against Boulder High School, lying about a program that had taken place there. And as part of that, sent his Jesse Waters minion illegally into the home of Boulder Valley School Board President Helene Waters, committing felony trespass. They perpetrated felony trespass, and they put it on the air. And sadly, our weak criminal justice system didn't do anything about O'Reilly's felony criminality in Colorado. Uh, I'm glad things finally caught up with him, but I wish there had been a prosecution 10 years ago for that. And I wish Fox uh, didn't celebrate fel people who perpetrate felons against w felonies against women and put it on the air to brag about it. Eric. Well, I was going to pile on a certain blowhard, but I would echo everything that's been said. But just to mix it up, let me go a different direction. If the Democratic Party is going to mount a rebound in this country, they need to be smarter than what I've seen so far. I use the, sp uh, the special congressional election in Georgia as an example. Whatever I know about politics, the first rule is you keep expectations low. The Democratic candidate down there got 48% of the vote in a 17 or 18 candidate race. If they had managed the expectations game, that would be regarded as a tremendous victory. But because they set the expectation game at 50, it's regarded as a defeat. If it's that kind of brain-dead strategy that continues, the party's going to have a long time in the wilderness. I agree. Halisi. I don't know if that's the disgrace of the week, but I have to agree with you. And, and I'm just going to, I am going to pile on Bill O'Reilly, and it's nice to see that we agree on something, but for a different reason, and more ab about Fox News, in that they could not have cared less about women. That's right. And the misogyny that they have shown over the past few decades is disgraceful and appalling. And to be able to put news behind the name, in my opinion, is 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 a travesty so what we know is that money talks and people mumble let's get to say something nice about somebody rather quickly patty well as long as we were talking about the a-line let's talk about the b cycle which is celebrating its seventh anniversary this year this weekend and i think has been a tremendous success in, in denver no thanks to damn A's. David. The Independence Institute is celebrating Earth Day and science with our Fossil Fuels Art Contest, where we encourage, there's a $1,000 prize for the best artwork uh, depicting the positive role of fossil fuels in our lives. And this program couldn't come to you without fossil fuels, even if all electricity somehow magically came from wind and solar. The products that are used, cameras, every, everything else, uh, couldn't exist if we didn't responsibly use fossil fuels. It takes a lot to generate this much hot air. Eric. I can't think of a better argument for fossil fuels than, fuels than this program, I tell you. <laughs> uh, real quickly, I've taken heat at this table before. I will again for my faith in the Colorado Rockies. They're off to a strong start. I don't know if it's this year or next year, but good things are happening on Blake Street. The team is headed in a positive direction. They know what they're doing for a change. If we can only have the playoffs in May. I have to thank uh, Senator Jack Tate, who is a friend of Colorado Black Women for Political Action. We have a piece of legislation, 1214, um, that was sent to the Kill Committee. Somehow he magically got it out. It passed um, the uh, Business Committee last week, and I think it's going to pass. So thank you, Senator Tate. 
That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out our new comedy lineup every Tuesday night. The cult favorite IT crowd headlines at 8 p.m. and Air Labor, produced out of Jerusalem, runs at 8.30. These are both great shows you're not going to want to miss. Trust me. As always, check out the CIO podcast on iTunes and Google Play and our segments from the show on Facebook and Twitter. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night. Thank you.